Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Michael Custodis. We will be discussing his newly published book, Music and Resistance, Cultural Defense During the German Occupation of Norway, 1940 to 1945, published in Münster, Germany, by Waxman Verlag, in 2021. Dr. Michael Custodis is professor of contemporary music and systematical musicology at the University of Münster. He was elected to the Agder Academy of Letters and Science in Christiansand in 2016 and was guest professor at the University of Bergen in 2017. Michael, it is my absolute honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for the privilege of your time and attention. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. My time now is already evening, so good evening, Ari. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Um, I'm 50 years old and um, I grew up in the western part of Germany, in the area of Mainz, which is close to the River Rhine, in the area around Frankfurt. And what uh, drew me to musicology is that I was also, a, 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 let's say, amateur musician. Um, so I was very into music, but um, mostly focused on music history, music theory. So I, like an art architect, would take a look at the blueprints I was always fascinated by scores and the harmony and the theory and the background of pieces. So that brought me into musicology. At the same time, I was always interested in sociology and political circumstance of, of cultural history so that I combined a lot of studies um, during my way from Mainz and Bergen to Norway, uh, in Bergen in Norway to Berlin where I graduated with uh, Albrecht Riedmüller at the Freie Universität Berlin. And I started there with a sociological view on um, contemporary music, especially in Cologne. So the history of Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and all the avant-garde music that started in Cologne. But it also, as it started in 1945, it very much um, also um, concerned questions about music history and national socialism. And um, as Many might know that Albrecht Riedmüller as a scholar is deeply involved in those topics as well. That's where I started to learn um, how to investigate music and Nazism. So the very complicated issues that are we dealing with here also tonight, uh, speaking about my book, so that um, the combination of music and politics is one of my main fields of work. 
I'm also doing different things, a lot of popular music and other things. But uh, in this aspect, um, it's uh, mostly music and politics dealing with the circumstances in the 20s and 21st century. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message or messages do you hope to convey to your readers? Um, it started as a project with a dear colleague in Norway, Arnulf Mattes, because um, I found out um, many years ago already, around 2015, that although the um, concept of Nordic was so central to a national socialism, the uh, situation, especially in Norway, hadn't been examined very well. Uh, what happened with the music life uh, during the German occupation, which started in April 1940 and ended in May 1945. So I started to dig deeper, go into the archives, and then we started a research project for four years. Um, and um, along the way, we had wonderful research assistants and colleagues involved, several conferences. It turned out that the aspect of persecution and of resistance hadn't been addressed at all uh, professionally. So there were some amateur historians who mostly connect, uh, collected a lot of anecdotes and more on the surface of uh, research. So we we were the first one to go into the archives. So I read 10,000, literally 10,000 of pages from the archives. And it was obvious that um, I wanted to document what I found and mostly um, dealing with resistance. My um, ambition somehow was to save the victims of national socialism from oblivion so that most of the artists and the musicians I was dealing with aren't so prominent, but each one had a singular fate. And um, so I first of all started with a more documentary project to cover the different aspects. We also found material from camps. We made a documentary movie. So we, we had different fields where we started to place our findings and in this case with the book i also wanted to learn about the power of music as a means of resistance on a very systematic level um, and somehow that was the concept for the whole book to um, show how important norway was for national socialism and at the same time how the norwegians very quickly tried to dissociate themselves from Germany, because if I might uh, mention, uh, add another sentence, um, Norway seems on the northern periphery of the European landscape. At the same time, it had centuries of connections with the German music life. We can come back to that later. But in the same time, the ideology of national socialism dealing with this crucial hierarchy of races put the Nordic race in um, quotation marks um, at the top of this hierarchy. So all of a sudden the Norwegians got attention from a political focus. They 
felt very uncomfortable with because national socialism wasn't a very strong concept in Norway. Um, so the musicians, the, the, the Germans tried to show that we are a Bruderfolk, that we are uh, a common brotherhood of nations and the Norwegians, most of them tried to, um, uh, let's say, um, show the distance to this concept. And at the same time, to keep the connections with Germany, the traditional connections concerning music, Beethoven, Bach, and the repertoire, keep that alive so that you had a distance of the German European cultural history and the Germanic ideologized some um, approach that the Nazi um, brought to occupy Norway. And this contradictions, these frictions between music and history between cultural and political concepts. That was the starting point for this book. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies and to the history of the Holocaust? Um, the research of about Jewish musicians in Norway and um, Norway as a country of exile and then of occupation started very, very late. And this is not only dealing with music, but in general with the historical point of view. So the research about the Holocaust and the consequences of national socialism um, started in Norway at beyond the 2000 years, which is really, really late. And my contribution is that I was the first one to ask because there were prominent musicians. Uh, we could name Ernst Glaser, we could name Robert Levine. They were the one a violin player, the other a pianist. They were very, very prominent and th their biographies had been written, yes. But in general, if those topics had been addressed at all, it was only dealing with classical music and it was only dealing with Oslo. But there are, of course, many different other places than only Oslo, like in France, Paris is not only Paris is not representative of all of France, London is not representative for all of Great Britain and so on. So if we could learn something, it was about Oslo and let's say three names. And um, I tried, first of all, to find out who else was involved um, and uh, very many, uh, we're speaking of something like um, 800 uh, Jewish people um, who were suffering uh, under the Nazis, who were deported. So it's a small number, but compared to um, the small population of Norway, it's still rather representative. And um, what we could find, what I could find is how Norway became an important land of exile after 1933. What happened with Jewish musicians who had to flee from Norway to Sweden after 1940 when the occupation began. So we are also speaking about survivors. And I was the first one to contact their families. I was the first one to ask. Um, and they were rather surprised that after eight decades, suddenly someone wanted to learn about their families and um, we could find very interesting very telling rich biographies let me give an example 
um, I could uh, reconstruct the biography of a violin player, Jacques Malignac. He was born in Warsaw in the late 1880s, so in the 19th century. He became a very popular musician. He was a violin player in Poland. He then got to Berlin, got an offer to go to Sweden. So he was already on the European landscape. He was the designated premier violin player for Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire. So you even can trace him in the context of Arnold Schoenberg that he didn't, didn't get along on a musical level, on a musical um, because, so that Schoenberg didn't take Malignac for the premier of Pierre Lunaire. There's a letter from Schoenberg where he describes that it was about uh, the fingering for the violin part. So they had, a, let's say, a confrontation on, on musical terms, not political terms, of course. But um, this is might be an example how important, how well trained this uh, Jacques Malignac was. And then he got the offer after uh, in the 1920s to go to Trondheim, where they had a very prestigious um, hotel, um, which was so famous and so rich that they uh, hosted their own orchestra. So it was for entertainment purposes, but also connected with the Trondheim Symphonic Orchestra. And he was the head of the orchestra. So he was the most prominent figure in Trondheim. Um, having all this reputation from European music life. And um, he was arrested in 1942, in late 1942, early 1943. He was arrested several times and he was deported. And he and his wife, they died in Auschwitz. Their daughter could flee to Sweden so that I had the pleasure and the honor to talk to their granddaughter so that wow. the family survived. And those questions underlined that although, let's say on the first view, we're dealing with the periphery of European music, at least geographic periphery, that those examples can be very central and very prominent. And um, that was, uh, let's say, my challenge or my motivation to as, as for many other scholars who are dealing with those topics, to show the richness um, of those biographies and to remember, as historians try to do. What was the significance of the music of Edvard Grieg during the Second World War? Um, Grieg was um, the most prestigious figure for Norwegian music life. Because, of course, there had been a few other musicians before him, but Edvard Grieg brought Norway in the 19th century on the musical landscape of the world, not only of Europe. So I guess everybody familiar with classical repertoire at least knows his piano concerto and Per Gint, all those famous melodies from Per Gint, maybe even other repertoire. So he was a ver world famous figure. And he was always a political thinker. He didn't try to, he tried to avoid um, being too involved into the liberational process of Norway because until 1905, Norway was part of Sweden. So there was a strong nationalistic movement for independence. And um, Greek was always an ideal figure to turn to as a symbol, but he was uh, strongly trying to avoid those 
everyday political debates. But for example, he got involved in the Dreyfus affair in France, um, where uh, there was a strong anti-Semitic um, campaign against uh, a, a major or a military man in France, um, a Jewish, who was accused um, for certain political circumstances, but it was a pure anti-Semitic debate. I guess many know the Dreyfus affair. And um, that was a moment where Greek got involved and said, I am a political man. In this case, I stand beside Dreyfus. So um, he had a strong position against anti-Semitism, for example. So he was a patriot, but not a nationalist. What brings us now to the 1940s with the German occupation is that he was the most prominent symbol of uh, classical um, uh, Norwegian music life. For example, um, Josef Goebbels, the German minister of propaganda, he appreciated, uh, he appreciated Greek's music very much. Greek died in 1907, but he had his centennial in 1943. So celebrating the 100th anniversary of such a prominent figure in Germany would have been Beethoven. In other countries, you can just imagine the, the importance of this symbol. And that was the moment where the German propaganda and the Norwegian Nazi party with Quisling um, on top, where they tried to claim the heritage of Greek to make official celebrations with many uh, endeavors, like a, a, an official propaganda movie, many celebrations, and at the same time, the Norwegian resistance movement also tried to remember that Greek doesn't belong to the nationalists. So Greek was um, a point of reference for everybody and a strong symbol also for the resistance movement. And Arnulf and I um, uh, reconstructed this setting of 1943. We have several publications out in, on our website, musicandresistance.net. You can also find the official propaganda movie, which we uh, discovered in the National Library um, in um, Oslo, so that the whole propaganda background of Greek was very, very strong. Thank you for sharing. In what ways did female musicians suffer differently than male musicians? Can you compare and contrast what That's ways, very... if any, were, were there differences or what were the similarities between male and female musicians suffering and experiences? Um, that's a very important question because uh, concerning the political circumstances, Norway was a very progressive country. So with the independence of Norway in 1905, becoming a parliamentary monarchy with a king and a very strong parliament, you had um, the uh, right to vote already dedicated also to women. So the female aspect of Norwegian politics was always very strong. So you can find, although the Norwegian music life is much smaller than many other countries, you can find in this generation of the late 19th century and early 20th century, several very prominent female composers. So not only on the side of the performers, like in countries like Germany, but also you could name Agatha Bakagrondal, 
uh, uh, Erbeck and others, um, you, you had prominent Signalund who turned to the fascist side of the story, also a very prominent figure, but um, having female composers included in the composers community, that was a given thing for Norway. So that was already special. Now, bringing that into the context of the occupation, um, we do not know very much what happened with several of the female musicians. Let me give examples. We know that Signe Lund was very closely connected with the official fascist agenda of politics. She was decorated. She was um, in contact with all the leaders. So she was on the propaganda side. We have um, others who were um, uh, undercover uh, uh, supporting the resistance movement. And we had others who tried just to mostly working as teachers, very often piano teachers, for example, trying to maintain their regular life. And especially in Norway, in, in Oslo, and Oslo was the power center of the occupational forces. So the smaller the communities became, the less strong the political pressure was. So Bergen on the West Coast, with the close connection to Great Britain, which was very important for smuggling in um, weapons, for example, Bergen was already a different atmosphere, but getting further north up to Trondheim, even getting further north up to Tromsø, you had different, let's say, atmosphere or biospheres for the music life, so that um, it somehow, there the routines were very much um, continuing as before 1940. A different situation we're dealing with in the um, labor camps and in the concentration camps and in the prisons. Here you had a segregation between male and female. And we know, if we know about imprisoned musicians, then we know about the male musicians. We do not know very much about the female musicians. And this are always, um, let's say, the margins of our research. Um, we haven't found material yet to answer those questions so that um, certain aspects are still op kept open. We know from uh, prison camps that in the everyday life of the prisoners, there the music was, of course, very important. And there I found many documents to um, imagine how the music life could have looked like in um, the concentration camps. So we are dealing with songbooks um, about songs that were so sung. Um, but for example, we know that the male musicians joined uh, the orchestras in the camps of Grini and Falstadt. I have no um, I have no hints that female musicians were included in the orchestras. So that there we have a very strong unbalance of genders when we're dealing with the prisons. Can you compare and contrast the ordeals of Jewish and non-Jewish musicians in Norway during World War II? How are they similar and different from one another? Few hundred were living in Norway, mostly were either in Oslo where there was a strong and an important synagogue and um, dealing with Trondheim, where there was also a community of Jewish people. In several other places like Bergen, 
we have some information. There might have been a few Jewish families, but we're dealing in those cases, maybe a number like 10 people. So it's not very representative. And we do not know if there were musicians among them. But the musicians, um, until 1942, the situation in Norway for Jewish musicians was more or less still liberal, not as fearful as, for example, in Poland, because Norway, after the attack in April 1940, was um, a very calm area uh, with very strong um, military representation. But for example, you after the um, Battle of Narvik in late 1940, there was no battle zone except the Finnmark in the very far north with the border to the Soviet Union, except the Finnmark. It's like the polar region of Norway, except the Finnmark, there was no um, battle zone so that the everyday life, the routines came back very quickly and the Jewish people there felt rather safe. Of course, they had a lot of pressure, but not comparable to Poland, for example, so that when rumors spread in late 1942 that deportations after the Wannsee conference, um, that deportations were about to happen. Many Jewish families didn't believe that and thought that it's only, let's say, um, rumors. So that the deportations, the arrests and deportations of Jewish people in late 1942 happened very quick, quickly and were carried out by the Norwegian police so that the collaboration between Norwegian forces under the control, uh, control of Quisling and German forces were working hand in hand. Um, we know that several musicians had the chance to flee to Sweden. So Sweden with the long border to Norway where you could cross the border during night times was a very important travel route um, to escape and for example, I reconstructed um, the fate of a musician called uh, Lankalinsky. Um, he had Swedish parents. And as Sweden was neutral, they had the right, and he had the right with Swedish parents. He was, um, uh, he, he was first arrested in a concentration camp in, uh, in the area of Trondheim called Falstad. But then he was released and could, um, emigrate to Sweden. So we also have those cases, which are different, of course, from Central Europe and especially Eastern Europe. Um, the Jewish inmates in the concentration camps had to suffer very, very badly. The concentration camps in Norway were no um, uh, death camps like uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, Mauthausen and others, so that in early 1943, late 1942, the Jewish inmates in the um, concentration camps were deported and then di directly deported from Norway through Germany to the um, death camps like Auschwitz. Um, but also we have a few survivors who, for example, survived in Sachsenhausen so that um, the Norwegian um, uh, persecuted Jewish 
uh, musicians um, were spread all over um, northern Europe, eastern Europe in those camps and some um, left memories. So in their memoir, memoirs, we can trace certain parts of their biography. Um, but it's difficult to find sources in the official archives about uh, those inmates. Other points of reference are the visual history archive of the Shoah Foundation. There you have other survivors who um, tell stories about either their fate in Norway or what happened to them afterwards in the um, concentration camps in Poland. So that the situation in Norway um, first was more calm and then intensified rapidly in early 1943 um, so that the consequences for the music life were very, very strong. Maybe I might add another aspect. Um, the Norwegian counterpart of Josef Goebbels was called um, Gulbrand Lunde. He was the Norwegian Minister of Propaganda. First, until 1942, there was a Staatsrat, the State Council under the control of Reichskommissar um, Terboven. And then in early 1942, um, Wittgen Quisling was installed as the Prime Minister um, of a supposedly independent Norwegian government, which of course was only controlled by the Germans. And then in early 1942, um, Lunde was promoted to become the Minister of Propaganda, which was his position already in the early 1930s. Lunde was closely associated with music. His mother was a trained singer, educated in German, in Germany, specialized on the German lied tradition. So he had a very strong affiliation to music and he appreciated um, Ernst Glaser, the Jewish first violinist of the Oslo Symphony Orchestra. He really was a fan of Glaser, which is a strong contradiction to Lunde's general strong anti-Semitic agenda. So he admired this musician and support, saved him, supported him, protected him from political pressure, while he at the same time carried out very strong anti-Semitic policies. And the, those contradictions uh, for the music life were of course very important because if you have a minister of propaganda with at least some sympathy for prominent Jewish musicians, that was an, an, an exceptional setting. After 1942, the situation changed completely because Lunde died in an accident you had the deportations and you had now a different political uh, uh, personnel with Fugelsang, the new minister of propaganda, who had no interest in the arts and culture in general. So that also somehow contributed to the situation of Jewish musicians in Norway. What new perspectives are found in your study regarding Vidkun Quisling and Josef Terboven? Um, Concerning Terboven and Quisling, not so much, because as persons, they were not very interested in culture and music. But as I explained with Lunde, they had their administration who was taking care 
closely of music and the arts. So that in the case of Tabhoven, he had the head of the arts and propaganda administration. This man was called Georg Wilhelm Müller. And this Mr. Müller had been the adjutant of Josef Goebbels before he was um, sent to Norway. So he had very strong ties to Goebbels personally. At the same time, this Müller was member of the SS and um, he was trying to organize the whole control of the official music life in Norway. The German side of the administration was taking care of the official political aspects of propaganda and of the soldier in um, strong rivalry with von Falkenhorst, the Wehrmacht. So this is very much dealing with the military history. While the administration of Quisling, of course, Quisling needed always music for propaganda purposes, but he was not very much into music in general, but his minister Lunde was very closely connected with music. And Lunde was taking care of the Norwegian part of the music life so that the musician, the Norwegian musicians and the orchestras, if Norwegian musicians wanted to perform and give concerts in churches or wherever, so the Norwegian part of the music life, that was part of the administration of Lunde. So the um, leaders like Tabovn and Quisling took care that their men in charge for music, for the arts, for propaganda, were very well aware of the importance of music. And somehow, uh, from this point of view, we could uh, contribute quite a lot to the understanding of the whole political situation. But um, our focus were not Tabovn and Quisling, but instead their political personnel. And that was completely new because nobody knew about those figures of the cultural administration. We're also speaking of censorship. We're speaking of media politics and all those things. What were the most important Norwegian musical works composed during the years of World War II? Um, that's a very interesting um, and important question. We um, owe quite a lot of support from a Norwegian colleague, Arvid Wolsnes, who had been a professor of musicology in Oslo. And he um, is an expert on the composer Ludwig Jürgens Jensen. And uh, so um, Arvid was always a very good advisor for us because he's from a generation who knew many people personally. So coming back to the questions of important composers, um, we have to first look to the 1930s. Norway's compositional elite never turned to modern music in the sense of Stravinsky, in the sense of Schoenberg, um, but had a more late romantic, a little bit of neoclassical approach so that they were more on a traditional level combining moderate modern um, techniques with folk music inspirations. The most influential composer um, became um, closely 
connected to um, the political control is called David Monrad Johansen. So he was something like the Norwegian Werner Eck, one of those composers who strongly supported the system, who um, organized a lot of bureaucracy, taking care of royalties, what like the um, copyright associations, like the administration of the officially controlled music life. At the same time, you had several composers who either only wrote without publishing their music, without performing it. So they, we have several important politically inspired works that had to be discovered after 1945. So their premiere was rather late because the political circumstances didn't allow critical um, compositions. Or we have examples like Harald Severut. Harald Severut was a symphonist um, in Bergen in the generation after Edvard Grieg. And he was um, a very prominent man in Norway, mostly connected with the Western coast um, scenery. His brother took care of the military resistance after 1940 um, along the West coast of Norway. And Severut composed three symphonies under the German occupation who have um, affiliation with the resistance movement. And the first symphony he composed during the war, the first of his three resistance symphonies was his symphony number no. five, labeled Quasi Una Fantasia, which is with the symphony five and Quasi Una Fantasia, a direct reference to Beethoven. And I could find out that this Quasi Una Fantasia, many might know that uh, Quasi Una Fantasia is also the um, title of the famous Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven. But the Moonlight, uh, Moonlight Sonata, Opus 27.2, has a sister sonata, Opus 0.1. And this Beethoven Sonata is the backbone of the whole symphony of Severut, which was premiered in 1941. And the interesting aspect here is that um, Severut took his uh, admiration for Beethoven to somehow as a blueprint for his own on only on a formal level. You don't you don't find any quotes, any musical quotes from Beethoven, but like how to work with the first movement with the second motive and so on, like on a very structural level. But the idea of course was to protect the German uh, um, heritage of Beethoven against the German occupiers. This distinction between German cultural history and Germanic Nazi representation, so that also other musicians, um, which uh, um, uh, reconstructed their concert programs, for example, kept on performing Bach. Why did they kept on performing the, the organ music of Johann Sebastian Bach? Because they were all trained in Leipzig in the 1920s, some in the 1930s. So they had the memory of a different Germany and they didn't want to give, in this case, Hitler's Germany the right to speak on behalf of German music, but instead, like other exiled musicians, to remember the world 
that also a different German history exists, like Thomas Mann in exile on, in the United States on the West Coast, like Adorno, like Hans Eisler, like Schoenberg, like many others, to remember and, and somehow find the um, uh, find an audience and find publicity for this aspect that Nazi Germany is not the only German history we, or the German cultural history we're speaking about. So those references can also be found in Norway, um, including the concert life, so that we have clandestine composing, we have official composing, we have propaganda uh, compositions, we have beautiful melodies with, which have no connection with politics, so everything in between from propaganda to resistance. What is your book's contribution to history of Norwegian internment camps during the Second World War? Um, the history of um, prison camps, concentration camps in Norway is um, a part of uh, contemporary historic, historical projects in Norway. But the music life was only described for the camp in Grini, which is close to Oslo, and mostly focusing in the late years of the occupation, 1933 to 45, uh, 43 to 45, and very much dealing with cabaret songs. So my first ambition was to find out all the aspects we don't know in Grini in this case, about musicians who were sent to Grini but came from different parts of the country, um, like famous violinist players. And before they were sent to Grini, they were incarcerated by the Gestapo. So part of those biographies I tried to contribute. And uh, for all the other camps in Norway, the musical aspect hasn't been described at all. So my ambition was, first of all, to find out how much do we know who was imprisoned for which reason and what do we know about the musical life. And I didn't find very much yet because it is a very long ongoing process of um, going through many of the archival files. Maybe I might give an example. I was sitting in Oslo um going through all the um prisoner cards with all the names from the concentration camps in norway um trying to find either and there was a um, a, a publication already um giving hints about the profession of um, uh, of the um prisoners in norway so i had first hints where to start to look for and um then i found many examples that either musicians were imprisoned, not for their musical part of the biography, but for political contributions to the, res the resistance, for example, smuggling weapons, smuggling information, so more for political matters. And we had people incarcerated for musical matters, which were no musicians, for example, whistling a German critical tone on the street, the Wehrmacht soldier heard this 
critical tone, this critical melody. So those people were in prison for several months. Or an organ player playing a song dedicated to the king who was already in exile in London. So in being imprisoned for several months for playing an anthem for the king. So we had musical matters or we had political matters of musicians or political peoples and vice versa. And um, then I tried to find out uh, which camps are we actually speaking of. So many camps even have not been described yet concerning their inmates. So that um, as I have to wait until the historians in Norway um, give lists of names, for example, that we can examine if uh, musicians were among them. So I could locate, let's say, 250 people inside those camps in Norway who were either affiliated with music or um, musicians being imprisoned for political circumstances. But of course, this is only the tip of the iceberg or for the camp of Falstadt, I could reconstruct that there must have been an orchestra, but we only know from a Christmas celebration in 1944, from an official program, from the protocols, from the records of this Christmas celebration, who was performing there, who was singing, who was playing for a string quartet and so on. But we have no sources yet dealing with the years before 1944. We only know from a certain memoirs that there had been singing and there had been musicians performing. But we do not know their names yet. We do not know what they performed. So um, many, many blind spots concerning music in um, those camps in Norway. One of the camps that's alluded to quite frequently in the book is the Breitveit camp. Can you tell us about it? What were conditions like there? How much is known about it? And if little is known, why is little known? Um, um, I have... I cannot answer this question properly at the moment because um, for, let's say, three dozens of musicians, um, I could find references from their journey through different camps or through different prisons. And Bretweit was always a place where they were imprisoned for a while, but I do not know what happened inside this prison. So it must have been a very important place, but I cannot answer yet because um, the situation in Norway was also uh, difficult after the war because very soon the, the situation in Norway was that um, most of the Norwegians um, were more or less supporting or were um, sym sympathizing with the resistance. Many tried to stay away from politics and some collaborated. But after the Second World War, um, the situation changed very quickly so that you had scapegoats the, the, the 
um, narrative was that the traitors, the political traitors, was only a small group, although there were many supporters. For example, the economical parts of the Norwegian society, um, of the working force, for example, they benefited very much from the Germans because the organization taught building railroads, building streets, building construction sites for bunkers, for um, all the, the um, military um, forces uh, needing protection shelters and all that. So for example, the, uh, those companies dealing with uh, the, those uh, construction projects, they benefited very much. So that was, there was a strong taboo, taboo after 1945 not to discuss politics. And there was a general amnesty very soon after the war um, so that in the early 1950s, the narrative was very strong that Norway had been a country in complete resistance, maybe comparable to France, so that discussing collaborators and discussing um, people who didn't agree with this general narrative and this taboo, those debates started in the 1990s, so very, very late. So there weren't very many situations to start those debates. And coming back to your question, um, when was discovered what and when did who discuss what, um, that there wasn't a strong will to discuss those political aspects so that um, the, union, um, the unions uh, very soon after the Second World War um, started to evaluate who did what uh, during the occupation. You had to pay a fine, for example, if you played for the Germans, but very soon the Norwegians also had a lack of workers so that you couldn't expel ten thousands of people from the working force, but instead they tried to reassemble as a community to re-include all people so that the taboo was very strong not to discuss political terms and to political matters. And therefore, the reconstruction in Norway started so late. And as we all know, um, music is not on the top of the agenda if you start to reconstruct the situation during an occupation. You start with politics, you start with economics, maybe with all the armed forces, so that this idea of musical is like the autonomous part of the arts, like a world of its own, not dealing very much with politics, was very strong. So maybe this might be an explanation why the re-examination started so late. Often in your book, you allude to the Gestapo prison at Müllergata 19. Yes. Can you yes. tell us about this prison? Um, this must have been really a place of horror um, because the German forces, especially the this Gestapo, were absolutely brutal. So you had this was this was a place where torture happened so that the Germans um, tried to get get as much information as possible um, from all the political prisoners. And of course, this was in Oslo, and Oslo was the center of everything. 
So Oslo was the center of the occupation with all the administration, the center of the military. The other parts for military were the West Coast, of course, because that was the battle zone with a lot of minefields, and so, um, because that was the, the connection towards Great Britain. But back to Oslo, Oslo concentrated a lot of attention. So the resistance movement was the strongest in Oslo. And that's why the Gestapo tried to trace as many uh, resistance fighters as possible, also as many Jewish um, people as possible. And um, if you were imprisoned somewhere in those camps, um, it was also clear that the Norwegians still had something like a benefit because they were considered uh, a, a brother nation to the Germans due to this racial hierarchy so that the natural Norwegians um, didn't have as um, brutal circumstances in the camps as, for example, the Jewish inmates. But if you were incarcerated in Malagata, that was the center of the Gestapo, and that was as evil as many other places of the Gestapo, maybe in Krakow with Hans Frank or in Paris, um, where the Gestapo was carrying out yeah, all the brutality that they did against their political enemies. So that was not a place of any, that had anything to do with music. That was a place that um, had to do with all the prisoners who were questioned there. So that um, if you were brought there, you had to go through the most mean um, modes of torture you, the Gestapo carried out. Um, and afterwards, you were sent to other camps for many months or even years or maybe to the continent, to Germany and other camps. But somehow this was the place uh, where uh, questioning prisoners happened under the circumstances of torture. How does the history of Norway's camps contribute to debates surrounding where the Holocaust was and was not located? when the Holocaust was and was not active, and how the Holocaust should be defined, bound, and limited? Um, that's a very important and very complicated question. And um, I somehow have to limit my comment uh, in a certain way, because I'm not an expert on uh, the political history of Norway. In the late 2010 years, was it 2018 or 19? I have the book here in the back of my desk. There started a huge debate between historians. Um, Marte Michelet was, uh, is a journalist who started a debate against uh, mostly um, a historian, Beate Bruland, who um, published a huge volume about the Holocaust in Norway. And um, Marte Michelet questioned 
how much the resistance knew about deportations of Jews from Norway, because also the resistance fighters, they have, they were very well connected um, to the political administration as well, smuggling information and all of that. And so they also helped Jews to escape to Sweden, but they benefited financially. So they all, some obviously made a profit, a financial profit from helping Jews to escape. And Martin Michelet started this debate and that became a huge debate in Norway among the whole political um, and historical scholars in Norway. And I wasn't part of the debate so that I somehow observed the debate. But um, there you could, um, uh, let's say, observe how difficult it is still to debate those questions in Norway and where the lacks of sources um, provoke certain interpretations. So that was a debate that happened compared to other countries more than a generation later. So in the, just imagine um, it's now 2023. Yeah, like five years ago, having such a strong debate this happened in France and in Germany in the 1980s, in the 1990s, maybe in the early 2000s, when several archives after the, um, the fall of the Iron Curtain, for example, were accessible all of a sudden. So this debate in Norway was more than a generation later. And music wasn't part of those debates. This was really a strong um, discussion uh, among scholars of political history and of Holocaust studies in Norway. And that was very complicated because they were discussing many details where it was difficult. If you haven't read the sources, you couldn't really understand what they were discussing about. So it was, um, if you might know from the German setting, the famous Historikerstreit of how comparative, how is it possible to compare the Holocaust to other genocides or not? So, that was maybe a similar debate, very complicated, but complicated to understand for outsiders. So I cannot really answer that. Um, those debates are easy to find um, in publications. It was a debate mostly of Martin Michelet for and against uh, the debate of Beate Bruland and other writers, scholars in Norway. One camp that is also mentioned quite a bit is the Xiter camp. Are you familiar with its history and- No, uh, okay. un unfortunately, unfortunately not. Um, the uh, idea of my book was okay. to present as much knowledge as I have from the sources. And very often I had to admit that several names several places are the only information we have at the moment and hopefully other scholars could start from that point and um, contribute with further research to find out more about that for example after my book was published in 19 in 2021 um, the history of the occupation in bergen was professionalized with a new museum at the place where the Gestapo headquarters was in Bergen. Uh, 
So they started a no, new procedure with new sources and new knowledge, but that was, for example, too late to include it in my book. So that very often, uh, like, um, let me give an example. I found a list of artists who were connected with the resistance movement. This list must have been assembled, let's say, in February or March 1945. We do not know exactly. And this list is interesting because it gives name of at least 250 artists associated with the resistance, sometimes supporting them. At least they were some of the trustworthy people. And if the Gestapo would have found this list, it would have been extremely dangerous because um, you could, with all the clear names and their addresses, you could just go through and arrest all those people. So I tried to examine each and every name I found on this list and publish it in my book. And sometimes I could only give a name, sometimes maybe a birth date, sometimes even a professional uh, affiliation, uh, which orchestra they were affiliated with or else. So that um, you can see many aspects I had to leave open so that hopefully at a later stage with new information, we could continue from those points. So with certain camps or certain artists, that's the only that's the only information I have at the moment, and hopefully others can continue. Okay. What were the most important films pertaining to hmm. Norway's experience during World War II? Um, that's a very interesting topic, because um, I've what was completely new to me and even very entertaining, although it might seem strange to have this connection of entertainment and the resistance movement and the occupation of Norway. But what happened is that um, the exiled Norwegians tried to keep up the public attention for Norway so that we could find um, a record that was produced in New York in 1942, um, which comp was just a compilation of songs from, uh, there was a strong um, uh, section of Norwegians who emigrated to the United States in the 19th century. So th they were located in the United States. In Brooklyn, um, you can find a newspaper uh, which was published weekly in Norwegian. So there was a very strong Norwegian community of, in this case, in Brooklyn of 80,000 people. And they, of course, supported the Norwegian homeland and tried to keep up the public attention. And there you find this record called Fighting Men of Norway with patriotic songs. <coughs> and in 1943, you find a Hollywood movie called Edge of Darkness. And this Edge of Darkness movie is absolutely stunning because the title role, the main character, is starring Errol Flynn. Even the, um, the, title, the title role was designated first to Humphrey Bogart, who just finished the, Casab the famous Casablanca movie, but he didn't uh, take this offer. So Errol Flynn 
took um, the offer and he is the, the main character, but also we have the um, film score from the famous Franz Waxmann, which we might know from his collaboration, for example, with Alfred Hitchcock. So you have a prominent Hollywood movie from 1943 portraying the resistance movement of Norway which might seem strange, but Norway was a very strong example for a country that resisted against the Germans, so that you can find the famous quote from Roosevelt, if you're looking um, for brave people to somehow not give in to the Germans, look to Norway. So that um, you have, during the Second World War, a Hollywood movie portraying the um, the military resistance. You also have um, a, um, a musical comedy, more musical, in New York, um, which is uh, which features the music of Edvard Grieg. So the story uh, itself is made up a little closely affiliated with Grieg's biography. Um, it's called Song of Norway. So the music was a very strong and important means to keep the public attention towards Norway and the American media industry in this case um, was very happy to support that. So for a small country of Norwegians in at this time, let's say three and a half million people finding that much, much attention during the Second World War even in Hollywood, was very surprising to me. Can you tell us about Norway's relations with East Germany and West Germany uh, in regard to music and musical diplomacy, musical interactions? Um, very interesting question. Um, the end of the Second World War, um, was difficult, of course, for the German-Norwegian relations, because all of a sudden, on musical terms, there was a strong relation, um, which was dealing mostly with Leipzig, the famous conservatory there, and Berlin. So the musical relations were still strong, but all of a sudden you had two Germanys. You had the Western part, with the English, the French, and the American sector, and you had the Soviet, the Russian part. And in 1949, of course, um, you have the two rivaling German states. The Adenauer cabinet was very conservative, of course, but for the political power structure of the Western allies, very important, so that Adenauer and de Gaulle soon started to rebuild the German-French relations. Norway was very skeptical because um, you can find an example in, was it 1942, I guess, you had the Winter Olympics in Norway. I hope it was 1942. Uh, maybe the date is wrong, but the example is there that um, you can find cabinet protocols of the um, uh, German cabinet of Adenauer, where the diplomatic information was, if Western Germany might win a gold medal, it was clear that the German anthem was not welcome in Norway. 
because of course it reminded strongly the Deutschland lead of the years of the occupation. So that in this case, the diplomatic solution was they should have played Beethoven's Ode to Joy. So music was always a strong symbol. At the same time, Norway had to deal and come to terms with Western Germany because they were NATO allies and Norway needed the um, economic relations. That only um, improved with the first social democratic chancellor, Willy Brandt. Now we're already in the 1960s because Willy Brandt was not only a resistance fighter against the Nazis, but he had found his first exile in Norway. Then with the German occupation, he had to flee to Sweden, but he could speak Norwegian without a dialect so that the Norwegians considered him um, a, a Norwegian himself. And that helped to rebuild the Western German um, Norwegian relations because then Norway started to trust that now Germany is really a different country, but we're now in the late 1960s. Now let us turn to Eastern Germany. In political matters, Eastern Germany was the ideological rival. They were the socialists and Norway was affiliated with NATO. Okay, but at the same time, um, you had hundreds of thousands of Soviet prisoners um, uh, in Norwegian camps for the Organisation Tot, uh, working for slave labor for the Germans. And the Norwegians must have treated the Soviets very well, so that there was, a after the Second World War, a strong connection between the Soviets and Norway, being grateful and thankful how the Norwegians somehow treated the uh, Yugoslavic and Soviet prisoners. And that was something that Eastern Germany tried to connect to, so that they tried to remember having this common anti-fascist history. And even more important was that Western Germany blocked Eastern Germany in the diplomatic realms of the UNO, for example, so that Norway had to find, and then Eastern Germany had to find different means for public um, attention. And of course, cultural diplomacy and music was, was very welcome so that you can find many choirs, amateur groups, Norwegian musicians being invited to Eastern Germany because music was always very helpful because music seems to be only music not involving politics so that that was somehow um, a common ground where you could rebuild the Norwegian Eastern German tradition uh, which somehow was an invention but at the same time rivaling against so to put it a different way the rivalry between Eastern Germany and Western Germany also had a common ground in Norway because they all tried to get the attention and the support from Norway because it was a little bit exotic, at the same time very prominent artists. And um, Eastern Germany especially tried to reestablish the old idea of the Baltic nations all across the Baltic Sea 
and of course Norway was very important in this context as well. So um, as much as it seems to be on the periphery, again, Norway was in the center of attention for German relations. What is your book's contribution to Jewish Norwegian history and Norwegian Jewish history? Um, maybe others could answer better because speaking about the impact of one's own book might seem a little strange. At least what I might say is that I was the first concerning music to remember of certain musicians. And the families of Jacques Malignac and others um, were very grateful that their relatives now were documented in their own profession in music because what the Germans, of course, the Nazis tried to do was not only to extinguish and to somewhat destroy the lives of those people, but also the memory of those people. And that's something we tried, or I tried at least to change a little bit to save those biographies from oblivion. At the same time, um, I tried to remember them as musicians and not reduce them to a role of only being a victim because they were strong personalities having a long life before um, the, uh, their persecution started to change so many things. So I tried to remember them as musicians and not only being victims. And at least what I can say from the families I, were in I was in touch with and I am in touch with, that they felt very comfortable with the way I portrayed their relatives, because not only giving a name and a number and a prison camp, but instead trying to tell about the life of those people and the importance of their musical contribution to history. So if this might be a point of reference, um, that was my approach to remember musicians in their own profession and not reduce them to victims. And um, if somebody else hopefully appreciates that, I would be very happy. Although I've asked you about some of the lesser known camps mm -hmm. in Norway, um, I was curious if I could ask you about some of the better known camps in Norway, sure. such as the Greeny camp, Falstad camp, yeah. Berg camp, yes. Espeland camp, its pissing camp and others mm -hmm. what new insights does your research reveal about some of the better known camps in norway um uh, for greeny for example um i tried uh, let me start once again um the topic of music and concentration camps of course is already a very well-established field of musical research. We could speak of Sachsenhausen, we could speak of Auschwitz-Birkenau and other things, so that the main aspects, how music under such extreme brutal circumstances 
could take place or couldn't take place. So somehow was a good guide, guideline for me trying to examine um, how the situation in Norway might have been. Grini was a huge camp and Falstad um, in the near of Trondheim was a huge camp with hundreds of inmates coming in and coming out. And um, so the um, it was there it was possible at least to find traces of a music life in Falstad. Um, there must have been an orchestra. Certain incidents where singing was very important, I could um, reconstruct. Um, certain musicians being um, imprisoned there could be named. So, so at least a little bit could be outlined. Grini was the most pro prominent camp. And there I could add facets to the picture of certain musicians whose role was unclear about um, instruments that were made in workshops, secretly uh, crafted in workshops. Um, I could um, reconstruct uh, certain um, pieces that were performed there. I could find in the archives of Grini score papers with um, many um, voices that had been written for an orchestra, like uh, you, you have the score for the conductor, but each instrument has his, his or her individual voice, like the flute, the violin, and so on. And there you could find, for example, a political comments and quotes um, on uh, the score paper. So there was, uh, uh, I guess they made jokes um, about the German guards, which were unable to understand Norwegian, so that you could find a small line there. This was written with a Norwegian pen, use a German pen. So even small jokes you could find on the score paper. And those, um, let's say, uh, if you imagine you had a black and white picture of the camp's music life, I tried to bring in to color it, to get more detail. Um, uh, if this metaphor might make sense. Um, so for Grini, I could contribute different aspects which weren't dealing only with cabaret, but instead with orchestras, with a string quartet music and so on. For other camps, let me turn to um, the polar circle. There was a camp called Elvenes in the near of Hyrkenes, far beyond the polar circle. And um, I could find um, I, I went through the list of musicians and there was an organ player called Anlot Scheldas in Hönefoss and I contacted the present Kantor, the organ player there nowadays, if he had any idea who these musicians might have been and he replied very kindly Stein Södal, he replied very kindly that he was still in contact with the family and that he collected material from this musician. So he, he knew him personally, although he already had passed away. So he got me in touch with um, the daughter. And the daughter told me not only that her father, as in, in his 30s, was supporting the resistance movement during the occupation, but that even her grandfather as a teacher was incarcerated on the pol uh, beyond the polar circle and that he composed songs there in the camp. We could find the songs and we were the first ones with a school project 
um, to perform this music again after 80 years. And we even made a whole documentary movie about this story so that we could find music live in a camp in northern Norway where we even didn't expect it. So those surprises also happened so that um, we tried to think of all the other camps nobody asked so far. My next research is dealing with the um, temporary um, work camps for the Organisation Tot for Yugoslavian and Soviet prisoners, um, slave laborers. And we know from postcards um, that they sung certain music, but at the moment we do not know what. We do not know with which kind of instrument. We found one photograph where prisoners are sitting with costumes and instruments. So we have a first information. There must have been music, but this will be my next project. So for all the temporary camps, um, we have no idea yet. We just know that mostly there must have been music, but to turn this, um, let's say, uh, idea into facts takes much research work and um, at the moment I couldn't answer that. As we bring today's interview to a close, I'd like to thank you for your generosity, erudition, and eloquence in discussing this very important and sensitive topic. I could not be more thankful and more appreciative. Ari, it was my pleasure talking to you and especially for your very detailed preparation for uh, this interview, for all those very precise questions and also for your interest in, for your interest in this really highly important question because we're dealing very much with victims, with um, unknown fates with a lot of strong histories that still need to be told. So I'm very thankful for your support and your interest in, in those circumstances. It was my absolute honor. It was a real privilege to offer this platform to you and to have your time and attention to learn and listen. Thanks so much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in History podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Michael Custodis. We have been discussing his newly published book, Music and Resistance, Cultural Defense During the German Occupation of Norway, 1940 to 1945, published in Münster, Germany by Voxman Verlag 2021. Dr. Michael Custodis is Professor of Contemporary Music and Systematical Musicology at the University of Münster. He was elected to the Agder Academy of Letters and Science in Christiansand in 2016 and was guest professor at the University of Bergen in 2017. Thank you so much for everything you have taught us and shared with us today. It was my pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you.